Lord, it is blessed to you when one of your saints comes home to be with you. But it probably doesn't feel like that to Tim right now. So Lord, we pray that you comfort him, that you walk with him, that you help him grieve well, and that people tell stories and laugh and share tears all at the same time. Lord, we know it's okay to be happy and sad at the same time. Help us, help us do that well. Lord, we bless you for the senior high group that they're back. I know that we're commissioning the middle school group who will leave, I believe, Saturday. Um, Lord, it's a lot of work. And uh, having done that many, many years, it's, it's, it takes it out of you. It's fun. It's exciting. Love to see students grow. But I also pray that you give Patrick and the other leaders rest this week so that they can recover and be restored and things can go well for them. And Lord, we pray for Jim Morin and the, the bad news that he got this week, that you walk with him, that you comfort him, and that he, he has a, that he get a better, even a better understanding of what it means to be in you, even now. Lord, join us as we worship you. Join us, join us in your message. It's not my message for your people, it's your message for us. And Lord, I want to say what you want me to say. I want to say what Paul said in Romans 3. So if there's something I plan to say that you don't want said, I don't want to say it. But if you have something that you want said to your people, then say it to me. And make it burn within me, and I will speak your words for your people today. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Romans 3. Um, those of you who are guests today, awesome. Love to have you here. Uh, we're in the middle of a, well, not in the middle, but the beginning of a series on the book of, book of Romans. This is Paul talking to the church in Rome. Uh, just so you know, the church in Rome, what was going on, there were Jewish converts to Christianity, and there were Gentile converts to Christianity. Gentiles, just so you know, when you hear the word goyim or Gentile, it just means people that aren't Jewish. So all kinds of other religions, all kinds of other things. If you hear the word pagan, pagan literally means farmer, but they were just people that lived out that weren't part of the typical religious system of the time. So uh, here's what was going on in the church a little bit in Rome. The Jewish Christians kind of thought they were better than the Gentile Christians. And, and so there was a little bit of this going on. And Paul set out to say, no, you're not better. And no, they're not any good either. Because if you're trying to be good on your own accord, if you're trying to be good on your, if you're trying to prove to God how good you are, everybody fails. So last week we talked a little bit about God sees the hidden things. And if we think that he doesn't, then we're naive. Today, I'm going to tell you, it ends good, but this is bad news, more bad news, and some unbelievably good news. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you a couple of word pictures to think about so that uh, so maybe your mind gets right and you can hear what, what God's trying to say to you. So here's, here's the book of Romans summed up, or the, the third, third chapter of Romans summed up. Sin, the condition of sin, is a parasite. It will suck the life out of you. It aims to destroy. We'll give you an illustration here in just a minute to see how it works. But we don't often talk about, people don't like us to talk about sin anymore. The church get, oh, you're just telling us about how bad we are. That's not the case. Um, we want to show, tell you what your condition is so that you can receive the cure. See, every single person, I mean, you heard in the baptismal vows, do you believe that your children, though sinful in nature, are received by by Christ in, uh, in see, received by Christ in faith, and therefore ought to, and as a member of His covenant, and therefore ought to be baptized. So how can a little? I mean, at least all those adorable children. How can how can they be sinful in nature? Well, 
If you're born of a woman, everybody is, you're born with a parasite. The only person ever on the face of the planet that was born of a woman that was not born with this parasite of sin is Jesus. The only one ever. And the problem with a parasite is it, it gets in you, it latches onto you, and it feeds on you. And its purpose is to suck the life out of you until you don't live anymore. That's sin. And I hate to be the bearer of it, but we call it original sin in the church. It's the condition that we're all born into. So all of us are set up from birth, from conception, to be unable to make ourselves right with God, period. I know, I told you, it's bad news. The other thing is that we're doomed because of this. We're told in Romans 6.23, we'll get there in a couple weeks, but the wages of sin, the condition of sin, not just our individual bad acts, but the wages of sin is death. And that doesn't mean when your brain stops working and your heart stops pumping and your lungs start, stop taking in air, we're all going to suffer that death. The sting has been taken out of it, which we'll talk about a little bit when we hear the good news part of this, but we're all going to suffer that death. But it means eternal everlasting, nonstop separation from God. It means instead of the place with the gold streets and the angels on clouds, which I don't think the angels on clouds part is not part of scripture, but we're going to be in the place that is hot if we're on our own. There's no cure for sin on your own. You cannot be good enough to make God love you. You cannot be good enough to receive salvation. The chasm between us and God is so great that no one can leap over it. But we have this idea in the church, not everywhere in the church, but we, we have, none of us, would, no Christian would say, yes, it's up to my good works to get me in, right? We all know the truth, but we get so comfortable with being Christian and so accustomed to being Christian that we allow this idea to seep into our mind. Our culture is very, I call it churchianity, but, but there's even a, a piece that isn't, isn't connected to the church at all, but that has this idea that if I'm a good person, I get to go to heaven. And if you're a bad person, you don't get to go to heaven, you're going to burn. So let's think about that for a minute, just for a second. What makes a good person? Because I know that when I look at other people, I keep score, right? And so you don't live up to the standards I have for you, so you're, I'm better than you. And you do this too. You don't know it, but you do. You won't admit it, but you do. We all do it. We, we sum other people up. And we have standards that, and look at that, look at that. They shouldn't, how dare. But we don't live up to our own standards for ourselves, but we'll give ourselves a little out, but we don't give others an out. So here's the question. If being good gets you in, which is our cultural truth, the mythology of our culture, then how good's good enough? Mother Teresa good? Pastor Greg good? Or just Trent good? Zeeland, Michigan good? San Francisco good? Kuala Lumpur good? Axe murderer good? Where's the line? Who's good enough? Who gets to show up and say to God, look what I've done. Told you. Nobody. Paul tells us that in this passage. We're doomed on our own. And here's the other thing I want you to think about before we get to those two stories. Christianity's not fair at all. And I praise God for that. And I hope and I pray that by the end of this message, you'll praise God that he's not fair also. 
So here's the stories. History prof. Now, I went to Hope College back in the 80s, um, and we had a professor there, Professor Bear. He's a history prof. Excellent professor. Couldn't stand him. Great. I mean, we, his classes were a bear. He, he, he demanded more reading, more work. His tests were even harder. Oh, but I'm, I've learned more from him than I've learned from any other teacher or professor history-wise ever. So this isn't him, but I can picture this kind of guy. There's a guy in a, there's a class of history professor. He got so tired of students. Now, I don't know if those of you in college, if you take, um, if you take tests with the computers now or if you're on your iPads or whatever, but back in the day, we had these little blue books essay books, and you had to, yeah, they were, we just called them blue books, and you put your name on the front, and what, which hour you were in that class, and who your professor was, and, and they give you the thing, and you, man, you just go to town, you're just writing and writing and writing and writing, and, and then, 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 trying to pr- convince a professor that you know something that you don't really know. So this professor was so tired of students, when he says a two-hour exam, they get done, and they, and they, and they, and would, they keep, and they're walking, up to the, they're walking up to his desk, they're still writing, and they're trying to scribble. He gets so tired, he goes, look, if you can't tell me in two hours what you know, you don't know it. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you five-second warning at the end of the test. It's your job to keep, to keep tabs on it up until then, but you get five seconds. I'll say five, four, three, two, one, pencils down. And if your pencil doesn't go down the moment I say that, you fail the whole semester. Yay. So it gets going, test is going on, people are looking up and they're panicked and they're another pencil, another pencil, another pencil, another pencil, trying to tell this professor everything they know. And he says, five, four, three, two, one, pencils down. They all click down, kids come up, the students come up, they they fold up their books and they all walk, they single file up to his desk and they lay them on the desk in a pile, in a pile, in a pile, in a pile. He wanted them all a certain way. And he looked up and the line was getting short, he looked up, there's one student still back there going... Young man, I told you, pencils down or you fail the whole semester. This is your final warning. Pencil down. Kept on going, 20 minutes. 20 minutes this student kept writing. That professor, he decided, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to sit here. I'm going I'm to give him what for. I'm gonna, his face is so red and he's just sweating. And he's just, oh, just, uh, these insolent students these days. And 20 minutes, kid comes up, still doing this, still doing this, still doing this. Walks up, finished. I told you. That if you spend one more second writing after I say pencils down, you fail the semester. Young man, you fail the semester. You, what do you have to say for yourself? And he looks at the professor and he goes, do you know my name? I don't know you and I don't care to know you, young man. So he took his book and he shoved it in the pile, walked away. <laughs> Some of you will get it in a minute. He didn't put it on top, he put it down in there. Now, why? Why tell you that story? And I know I've used it before. Because some of us think that God is so busy with the warp and woof of the universe that he's so busy trying to keep chaos at bay and bring order to the, to the, to, to the creation that he doesn't notice our stuff. We think we can slide one under. And I'm just going to tell you that according to the scriptures, that is tragically naive. Sin works in such a way that we don't notice it. It happens in you, it happens in me, it happens to those of you sitting at home watching on the computer. East Africa, years ago, there's a, 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 I don't want to call it a tribe, a people group, a village, whose crops were being decimated by a troop of approximately 50 baboons. 
And these baboons would come in. They, they're in the trees. They, they ravage the crops. They get up in the trees. They, they leave their droppings all over everywhere. And this, this, this group of the, the elders in the village, they got together and they decided, we got to put these baboons down. We, they're going to destroy us. And, and if you don't like the idea that they were going to take the baboons and get rid of them, um, just understand that their survival depended on their crops and their children aren't going to eat and they're going to die if they don't rid themselves of these baboons. Regardless of the sensibilities of it, here's how the story goes. They got one of those huge cages like you would see on the big, back of a big flatbed, like a Delu lumber truck, that kind of, that, just a huge cage. You've seen, if you ever watched the safari show, you've seen these. And they, they put them out, uh, and then hanging from inside is just fresh fruit. Every day, they put fresh fruit in there. And, and the first day, these baboons, I mean, they, they see the fruit, and they like the fruit. It looks good to eat, kind of like Eve in the garden, you know. And, and, and they would come in, but they, it's new. And if you're a deer hunter, you've, you've seen this. When you put up a new stand or a new blind, the deer, even if it's on a well-worn trail, they get skittish. They don't, ah, it's new. But if you let it stay for a while, then they get used to it and they haven't been shot at for a while. So they grow accustomed to it. And then you're sitting there one day and boom, same thing with this cage. These baboons, they were reaching through the bars trying to get the fruit, couldn't reach it. Day one, no baboon goes in. Day two, they, every night when the baboons go off into the bush, they, they put this fruit back in there and every night. And so little by little, a day turns into a week. And I don't know if they had a little baboon meeting and decided who's going to be the one that is ex expendable. If it was the alpha male who's got to protect everybody else or the omega male who is expendable, I don't know. But one of them one day, and you've seen your kids do this when you draw a line. You say, don't, don't go over the, you know, don't go into the street from the trap. They kind of, this baboon stepped in, stepped out real quick. Stepped in, stepped out. All the others are sitting there and they're hollering and doing all their things. Stepped in, stepped out real quick. Stepped in, stepped out. But got a little bit more brave each time. Finally, that day, went in, grabbed a piece of fruit, ran outside, ate it. The next day, new fruit. Little by little, they grew, grew, grew so accustomed to that fruit that they began to depend on it. And they're in that cage all by themselves after two, two and a half weeks. All 50 of them in that cage all day long, eating fruit. And then one day, one baboon reaches up for a pomegranate or whatever it was, pulls it. It's attached to a rope. He pulls a little harder. It goes over to the cage door and that cage door slams down. Now, here's what the baboons did. They were sitting there, they're eating, they're all just having their baboon time. And that cage door goes, boom. And they went like my wife watching a, a movie when someone gets shot. And that was it. Little startle. Keep eating. They're doomed and imprisoned and they have no idea. Why? Because they became so accustomed to that which might do them harm that they didn't even notice once they were trapped. That's how sin works. You grow accustomed to it. You give it a little bit of power in your life. It has no cost at all. It feels like it satisfies something. And then it owns you. And I don't want it to own you. Jesus doesn't want it to own you. So listen closely to the bad news, the more bad news, and the really good news, because we find out God's not fair, and that's a glorious thing. I'm going to start in verse 9. It, that first question refers to this verse, to this, let a, so what should we say? Let us do evil so the good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. He's like, no. And, and Paul says to the church in Rome, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? No. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So Jews and Gentiles, that's us. As it is written, he's quoting scriptures from the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. Just so you know, righteousness, to be righteous is to be faithful to the covenant that God has made with you. 
There's more to it, but that's enough. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. No one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. The tongues, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not you. You ever size somebody up, talked about them? You ever judge someone from afar, but you don't know what they've been going through? You ever been slanderous or deceitful? Have you ever told something that isn't the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Have you ever thought, I'm going to look out for number one and not look out for other people? See, that's just evidence of the condition, the parasite that lives on your soul. It's a symptom of the disease, and we treat the symptoms but we can't address the disease. That's the bad news. And Paul goes on. It gets worse. Yay, Trent. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in, the sight, in, in his sight, God's sight, by observing the law, by, doing, by treating the symptom. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Sometimes when pastors get together, when you have people that that work in the inner city and you have people that work in the suburbs, there's this idea that work in the inner city is more righteous than work in the suburbs. And I get, I, I see the point. Because pastors that work in the suburbs usually have a better paycheck. They don't have to worry all the time about the needs of the church being met financially. But I can tell you one difference. One thing that's harder in the suburbs than in the urban areas. The urban areas, they know they have a need. They know that something has to rescue them from where they are. And not just out of poverty into riches, but out of pain and misery and into hope. But we who work with people like you, we have to convince you you have a need. Because we got it pretty good. I, my cars live inside I have a machine that produces ice so that my pop is cold. My lawn is so, I have a lawn. And so do you. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we get comfortable being Christian, but there's nothing comfortable about Christianity. What we do is we become churchians instead of Christians because we forget that we have a need to be rescued by someone who can cure you of the parasite that will kill you. But now... A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, faithful to God's covenant, from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you part of all? I am. 
If I'm part of everyone, I'm part of all. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So all of us are doomed on our own merit. But there is this righteousness that comes from God, not our own, but his. God presented him, excuse me, and uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement is just to pay for the sins committed. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because of his forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. A lot of justifications and demonstration of redemption and there's a lot of churchy words in there. Here we go. Atonement paying for. Okay? Justify. To be judged for what you've done. And for someone, for me to justify myself is to pronounce, to judge me and pronounce me innocent even though I know I'm guilty. But for God to justify you is to say you are guilty. Think of it, if you, if you were in, if you were accused of murder, first degree, and you actually did it. And you face trial, and the jury hands in this, this verdict, un, you know, yes, guilty. And you come to sentencing, and the judge says, the sentence for your crime is life in prison without the possibility of parole. No overcrowding stuff. You're not going to get out in 15 years. You're done. And the judge, before he hits the gavel on the little deal saying, court adjourned, he stands up and he says, you have been declared guilty. You've, you've been convicted and proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And your sentence is life in prison with no possibility of parole. But I declare that you're innocent, and I'm going to serve your sentence for you. That's what God did. And he didn't do it because you're just not good enough. He did it because you're going to die and stay dead and be separated from him for, forever if you're not rescued and if you don't believe that you need that, then I'm so sorry. But your life is going to prove me and Paul right. You can't be good enough. Now, my friend Bert Bolt, back in 2009, preached a message on Romans 7. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But he talked about how sin is a parasite and that kind of thing. But, but he said, he, said he, he was in between calls when, when he tells the story. He, was, he had a son, Corbin, who was young, and a neighbor kid that he was doing daycare for. His wife was working. And, and uh, every now and then his wife would call in and say, hey, how's, how's it going? He's like, I'm ready to throw one of these kids out the window. You've been there. And what his wife would say is, pick the right one. <laughs> now, flip that and look at what God does. If he gets so, we talked about his wrath last week, right? We talked about him seeing the hidden things, how, how frustrated, and I don't believe that God gets frustrated like this, but how frustrated he must be. And he's like, I'm, oh, some of these are going to have to, I'm going to nail them to a cross. Pick the right one. That's me. That's you. But instead of picking the right one, he picks the holy one. He picks the perfect one. He picks the sinless one. He picks his own son. 
to pay your punishment, to take on him what you deserve. And that's the piece of Christianity that's not fair. If you got what you deserve, you're doomed. If I get what I deserve, I'm doomed. But Christianity is the only religious system, the only worldview, the only, the, the, even, even if you just kind of take it down to a system of ethics. And I'm not going to go into all of them. We don't have that much time. I, try, I hope that you know me well enough that I wouldn't say these things about other systems if I hadn't done the study and come to those conclusions. But we're, Christianity, Christ himself, God, the, the God of the Christian Bible is the only God that has this idea that life isn't fair and that God isn't fair. Because if you're born into a caste, you have to do that, do that job, you have to do what you're supposed to do, and on your own merit, you decide, you find out, you, you, you get what you deserve, whether you move up or if you move down the next time you come back to life. Others, are, there's no great, there's a, you have no idea what God is pleased with and what he isn't. You just have to remain faithful to the rules that God has put out there in front of you. Time and time and time again, every religious system will show you that merit, accomplishment, and birthright matters. And so there's no level playing field. But to God, he says, no one gets in on their own. No one is good enough. No one has enough talent. No one gives enough money. No one, no one makes enough contributions that I'm going to say, welcome into my kingdom. If God were fair, then you would get what you deserve. If you get what you deserve, you're doomed. It is of utmost gratitude that I tell you, I'm so glad that God is not fair. See, God isn't looking for sacrifices from you. He offers sacrifices for you. Once for all, the work's done. 1981, L.A., pre-cell phone. They had, we had cell phones in 1981, but they were analog. You couldn't triangulate them. There were no low jack, those of you from the 90s and early 2000s, that car, you know, that thing to track down a car that gets stolen. But some guy steals a car. Big surprise, L.A., 1981. About 20 minutes after he stole it, the owner realized it. And he called the precinct, LAPD, and told him, you know, this guy stole my car, you got to find the car, you got to find the car, you got to find the guy, you got to find the Okay, mister, this is L.A. We have mass murderers out there. Your little Lexus isn't, I don't even know if we had a Lexus back then, but your little car is not high up on our list. I'm sorry, we'll take your report and hope something turns out, but you're, you're insured, right? Yep, yep, so you should be fine. And the guy kept getting insistent, okay, you don't understand, you don't understand. And I have no idea about this guy's profession. I don't know how he got these things, but he had in the passenger seat, he had a bag of arsenic-laced crackers. And he was going to take them home with his rubber gloves and the whole deal. He had, he had pack rats all over his backyard, and he was going to kill them. He's going to put, them out there, put those crackers out there, they're going to eat them, and they're all going to die, and then he's going to dispose of them. But he's fearful at this point that this man who stole his car is going to be going, cruising along and going, ah, crackers. He's going to die. So this all points bulletin goes out to track down this car, not because of the thievery, not because the guy was robbed, but because they're trying to save his life. So this car chase goes on for hours. He, this guy, this guy that they, they finally found him, he thinks they're out to get him, and, and he runs that car out of gas, and he finally gets arrested. Never ate a cracker. But he had a misperception of what was going on. He thought they're trying to get him to punish him, but they were trying to get him to save him. And some of us have that idea of God because we know our sin. 
that God is seeking us out. It's God who initiates faith. It's God who seeks because no one seeks God. We think that God is seeking us to expose us when really he's seeking us to save us. Will you allow him to redeem you, which means literally to buy you back? Now, if you've been a believer for a long time, look at your life. I bet you've drifted. You become like a baboon in a cage, and you don't realize how destructive that, that parasite's going to be. It's going to destroy you. But if you don't know, if you've never received for yourself the gift that God has offered to you, then I encourage you that this is the day. He's not fair. Praise God for that. Because if you were, you would get what you deserve. And I know it feels uncomfortable to some of us reformed believers to hear me say, if you will allow God to redeem you, because he's already done the work and God is sovereign and you can't, you can't tell God what he can and cannot do. I agree. But see, what we know about sin and what we know about the enemy of God is that they don't ask your permission to suck the life out of you and to destroy you. They impose their will upon you. God will never impose his will upon anyone. He imposed his will upon Christ. And so he seeks you, but he will not make you receive the gift that he's offered. So will you allow him to have purchased the gift, to have given the gift, and you allow those things to come into you by breaking the box open and receiving for yourself the gift that he has already paid for. You'll be justified, declared innocent. You'll be redeemed, bought back from sin and from the devil himself. And you'll be made righteous. Not your righteousness. The righteousness and perfection of Christ, big theological word, will be imputed upon you. That means that God will, when you face judgment, he will see the perfection of Christ on you, under you, over you, behind you, and through you. He loves you just the way you are. He won't leave you that way. Participate, cooperate with him in his refusal to leave you the way you are. Confess, repent, ask forgiveness, receive forgiveness, and then ask God to give you the Holy Spirit who will give you the power and the courage to live a life that shows other people who God is. Bad news. Really bad news. And glorious news. Don't be a baboon. And don't think that God is a cop coming to get you. He's coming to save you. Receive for yourself the grace that only Christ offers. Let's pray. Lord, I'm not going to try to sneak under, sneak my blue book under so you don't know who I am. I can't. I realize how sin takes me away and wants to destroy. And I know now that you're seeking me not to punish me, but to save me. Lord, I confess that I need you. I'm going to do my best 
to not behave the way I behaved. But I need your forgiveness. And I accept it. Holy Spirit, come live in me. Save me, and then make me wholeheartedly willing and able to live my life for you from now on. In Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, our Father. Amen. Okay, you're going to return the favor. They're sending you. You're sending them. So put your hands up in the air. We're going to give the benediction, okay? The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. Just look on God's face. God smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.